And we're going to read the first 11 verses here. So Philippians chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. Philippians 2, 1. Therefore, if there is any encouragement in Christ, if there is any consolation of love, if there is any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and compassion... Make my joy complete by being of the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind regard one another as more important than yourselves. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant, and being made in the likeness of men. Being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. For this reason also God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, So that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Well, in this passage, Paul begins by encouraging unity there in verse 2. And listen to some of the words here that um, kind of portray this idea of unity. Make my joy complete by being of the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. So each one of these phrases is pointing us to this idea of unity. Well, if unity is the main goal, the main objective here that Paul is after, what is the threat to unity? What is a big threat to unity? And what, is, um, what it is is the uh, root of quarrels and divisions. That is what is ultimately going to um, be uh, something that is going to disunify the body. And in verse 3, we see that here. It says, selfishness or empty conceit. Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit. And empty conceit, we could just simplify it and say pride. Doing anything from selfishness or pride is going to um, be something that is going to ruin the unity of the brethren. And I was thinking about this. If you you think about in, in a family Um, in a church setting, if each individual is focused on his or her own interest, then that certainly is not going to help foster unity. Whenever there is love of self, there is most certainly going to be a lack of unity. And you see that same idea in James chapter 4 when uh, James says, what is the source of quarrels and conflicts among you? Is not the source your pleasures that wage war in your members? So what's causing all these uh, quarrels and divisions? He says it's your pleasures. Kind of like, well, pleasures. So does that mean any desire that I have is therefore an evil? No. The problem is when that desire becomes my demand. That's one of the things that Paul David Tripp talks about as far as idolatry, when your desire becomes your demand. And when that becomes your focus, my desire, then you stop regarding other people and their desires, and it becomes a wedge in a relationship. So Paul, in these uh, two verses, verses 3 and 4, gives two negative commands to warn against selfishness and pride. And you see the first in verse 3, do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit. And then the second negative command is in verse 4, do not merely look out for your own personal interests. And then he gives two positive commands following each of those negative commands. So in verse 3, he says, but with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourselves. And then in verse 4, he says, but also look out for the interests of others. So you see the follow-up there, a negative command immediately followed by a positive command in both of those verses. 
So what is the attitude or mindset that must be present in order to have this unity? And we see it right there in verse 3, humility, with humility of mind. Just as we said earlier that where there is selfishness and pride, there will be disunity. So wherever there is humility and selflessness, there will be unity. If we walk in humility and if we're not looking out for self, then there will be an attraction to one another. There will be unity. It's kind of like the the idea of um, the magnets. You know, you, you turn them the wrong way. They're opposed to one another. When you align them right, they become unified. They, they're joined together. And what is it that joins us together? Well, certainly it's Christ. But as far as in ourselves, what, what attitudes are going to join us together? It's the I, attitude of humility and selflessness. Well, Paul goes on for the rest of this section um, here in Philippians 2 uh, to show the great example of humility that we have in the life of Christ. And we see that in verse 5. He says, have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus. And it is helpful to stop and ask, what is the main point of this passage And I believe the main point here is to show Christ's supreme example of humility in his uh, incarnation, there in verses 6 and 7, and in his death, in verse 8, and then the result of that humility, which is his exaltation, in verses 9 through 11. So the humility of Christ in in his life and his death, and then his exaltation. And so those are the three things that I want to look at this morning. So the first here, the humility of Christ shown in the incarnation. So verses 6 and 7 says, Who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. And I'm just going to stop right there for the time being. Whenever we consider the incarnation, we see two seemingly, and I emphasize that, seemingly conflicting realities. Jesus is God and Jesus is man. But scripture is very plain on this. He is both God and man. And we see that in this passage in Philippians. First, the deity of Christ. Um, And these two phrases that I wanted to particularly focus on, this first one in verse 6 although he existed in the form of God, and then a little lower down in the verse, did not regard equality with God. So existed in the form of God and equality with God. If it says he existed in the form of God, what form does God have? Well, in Colossians 1.15, Paul says, and I'm kind of summarizing this, that God is invisible. It says that Christ is the image of the invisible God. And so we could say that God is invisible. Um, And then in John 4, Jesus says God is spirit. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. So Jesus, in eternity past, was in the form of God, which was spirit and invisible. And then it also says here in in this uh, Philippians 2, 6, that Jesus did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. So what is this idea of equality? Well, it means that if something is equal, then that means they're the same thing. I I often think about this, you know, in mathematics, you have, you know, this equation and this, you know, 2 plus 2 equals 4. Well, what does that mean? It means that they both represent the same thing, that equal. It's a, a scale. It's balanced. They're the same thing. And that's what it's saying here. If Jesus equality with God, that means he is God. Um, And there's, I won't take the time to read these, but you can look at these uh, at some other passages if you want at home for some clear uh, texts on the deity of Christ. And I would point you to Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 through 20, some really uh, clear teaching. That's where it talks about he is the image of the invisible God. And then uh, Darren uh, read one of these this morning, John chapter 1, John's gospel, chapter 1, verses 1 through 5, talks about the word. Um, and then verse 14, you skip down, says the word became flesh. So those are some passages that you could look at that support this 
uh, teaching of the fact that Jesus is God. But I'm not going to take the time to look at those right now. But back here in Philippians, we see also the humanity of Christ. And it is in the humanity of Christ that we see the great example of humility. And that's what I particularly am wanting to focus on here. So in verse 6, he says, he did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. Christ had every right to claim the privileges of his deity. He had the right to hold on to his deity. How many times have we heard the words, I have my rights, or that's not fair, I have a right to fill in the blank or whatever. Of anyone who ever could have said that and been completely justified in saying it, it was Jesus. He had a right to deity. He had a right to all of its privileges. He had a right to the glories that he had with the Father before the world began. He had a right to perfect fellowship with the Father. He had a right to all of these things. And it says he did not treat these rights as something he had to hold on to or to keep. He was willing to let them go. He was willing to humble himself. He was willing to forego his rights. Think about this. Before his crucifixion, at the time of his arrest there in the garden, Jesus could have claimed his deity and destroyed all those who were coming against him. You know, the rulers are coming to arrest him. He could have claimed his deity, destroyed him right there. But this is what it says in Matthew 26, uh, Jesus speaking. He said, Or do you think that I cannot appeal to my father, and he will at once put at my disposal more than 12 legions of angels? Twelve legions? I mean, what would one angel do? You have the one angel there um, that went out and destroyed, how many was it, 120,000 in the camp or 180,000 in the camp of the Assyrians? One angel? Jesus is saying, I could call 12 legions of angels. He had that right. He had that ability. Why did he not do that? Because he was walking in humility and he submitted himself to his father's will. He was walking in submission and in humility to his father's will. Well, the next phrase I want to consider in verse 7, it says, but emptied himself. So he did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself. And I feel like this phrase right here sums up the incarnation. Jesus emptied himself. What is the incarnation? The eternal Son of God left his rightful place of glory and majesty. He didn't demand his rights, but instead emptied himself. He poured himself out. The incarnation is about the humility of Christ. Here we are at this Christmas season. We hear the songs. We see the nativity scenes, and we hear the Christmas story. And I appreciated Darren's uh, message this morning, just bringing out how oftentimes we can begin to get in the wrong emphasis about the Christmas season. What is the Christmas story all about? It's about redemption, that Jesus came to save sinners. That's what it's ultimately about. Well, we can hear all the songs begin to think that there's some intrinsic glory in a manger, there's nothing glorious about a manger. The glory was that the Son of God came born as a baby. That's the glory. Jesus is what's glorious, not the manger, not the wise men, not the angels that were singing. That's not what's glorious. It's Jesus that came, and he's the one that's glorious. But think about what Jesus came from and what he came to. In John 17, 5, in the high priestly prayer, Jesus says, Now, Father, glorify me together with yourself, with the glory which I had with you before the world was. Jesus had glory with the Father before the world was. What was that glory? We get a little picture of that in the Old Testament. And let's turn to Exodus chapter 19. And this is just... I feel like in many ways, this doesn't sum up the glory of Christ, of, of God, but it gives a little picture, just a little sampling of some of the majesty of who God is. Um, 
and the power that he has. So this is um, Exodus chapter 19. This is when God comes down on Mount Sinai. And begin reading in verse 16. It says, So it came about on the third day when it was morning that there was thunder and lightning flashes and a thick cloud upon the mountain and a very loud trumpet sound, so that all the people who were in the camp trembled. And Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God, and they stood at the foot of the mountain. Now Mount Sinai was all in smoke, because the Lord descended upon it in fire, and its smoke ascended like the smoke of a furnace, and the whole mountain quaked violently. When the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, Moses spoke, and God answered him with thunder. This is really just a picture of God's power and majesty and glory. And, I mean, honestly, if God had come in his full majesty, they all would have been destroyed. But God, in mercy, <laughs> restrains, and he, he comes down, and the whole mountain is just quaking violently. This is a picture a small picture of the glory that Jesus had with the Father before the world began. And he, back in Philippians here, he laid that aside. It says he emptied himself. He laid that aside and became a helpless baby. I mean, we think about this, that Jesus didn't come as a ruling king right away. He came as a helpless baby. The humility even in that. I mean, it's glorious. You think about baby Jesus, but the humility of that as well. Um, that is what we're talking about here. He emptied himself. And there's a line in the song that uh, John and Madeline sang this morning. It says, mild he lays his glories by. And that's the reality of it. He laid aside his glory. He emptied himself. In 2 Corinthians uh, chapter 8, verse 9, it says, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, so rich in what way? Rich, full of glory, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you through his poverty might become rich. That's the same idea. Here Christ has everything, and he empties himself out. He becomes poor for our sake, that we through his poverty might become rich. Well, the next phrase here in verse 7, uh, Philippians 2, verse 7, says, taking the form of a bondservant. So he emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant. So uh, it says there he emptied himself. To what extent did he empty himself? Well, if the eternal Son of God condescended to become a rich and powerful king on this earth, that would be an infinite emptying. Because the glory he had with the Father cannot be compared to any glory that is given here on earth. So think about the most majestic king that you could think of with the most riches, the most power, whatever. That is infinitely less than what he had with the Father in heaven. So it's an infinite emptying for him to become man no matter how rich or poor he was. The infinite gap is becoming a man, not about whether or not he was poor or rich. That's down here on our level. The fact that he condescended to become man is the infinite emptying. But did he come as a rich king? Did he come in royal robes and live in a palace? No. He came as a servant, a bondservant, or another translation would be a slave. His emptying was infinite to become a man, but he also emptied himself to the lowest position a man could have, and that is that of a slave or a bondservant. In Matthew 20, uh, it says this, just as the son, Jesus speaking, just as the son of man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. Jesus came not to be served, but to serve. And we see this so clearly displayed when he washed the disciples' feet. So let's turn to that in John's gospel, John chapter 13.
John chapter 13, begin reading in verse 1. Now before the feast of the Passover, Jesus, knowing that his hour had come, that he would depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. During supper, the devil, having already put into the heart of Judas Iscariot, the son of Simon, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come forth from God and was going back to God, got up from supper and laid aside his garments, and taking a towel, he girded himself. Then he poured water into the basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel with which he was girded. And then skip down to verse 12. So when he had washed their feet and taken his garments and reclined at the table again, he said to them, Do you know what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If I then, the Lord and the teacher, washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I gave you an example that you also should do as I did to you. So here Jesus, the Lord and Master, does the most lowly act of service for his disciples. This is a task that the servants would do, not the master, not the head of the house. That's something for the lowly servants to do. But Jesus lays aside his own rights as the Son of God and comes to earth as a man, and then he lays aside his own rights as Lord and Master and picks up a towel and serves, washes their feet. Not just the the highest form of service he can think of, he goes to the very lowest, the most despised form of service that anyone could do, and that is washing their dirty feet. And that's a picture of what his whole life was, emptying himself. He continually emptied himself, humbled himself. In the song, um, I'm Forever Grateful, there is a line that says of Christ, you clothed yourself with frail humanity. Well, what was necessary for Christ to clothe himself with frail humanity? Humility. He had to have humility if he's going to put on humanity. He had to humble himself and empty himself. So it is no wonder that Peter exhorts us in 1 Peter 5 to clothe ourselves with what? With humility. If we are going to be like Christ, we must clothe ourselves with humility. To be like Christ is to humble ourselves. That's the reality of it. If you're going to be like Christ, you have to humble yourself. You have to clothe yourself with humility. Well, back in Philippians 2, so we we finished talking here about the humility of Christ shown in the incarnation. Now I want to look at the humility of Christ shown in the crucifixion. This is in verse 8. Being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death even death on a cross. Here we have the ultimate and supreme example of the humility of Christ. He obeyed to the point of death. Now, notice it says he humbled himself. It doesn't say he was humbled by something else. We speak that way oftentimes when trials come upon us. We say, this trial or this situation has humbled me. And we speak that way because the source or the cause of our humbling is outside of ourselves. But what about Jesus? Is anything outside of him in the sense that it is outside of his control? Well, no. He actively humbled himself. He put himself in the position of humility. In John chapter 10, um, Jesus says this, For this reason the Father loves me, because I lay down my life so that I may take it again. No one has taken it away from me, but I lay it down on my own initiative. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This commandment I receive from my Father. You see in that the authority of Christ. No one can take 
my life from me, the, the authority that he has. But you also see the great humility. I lay it down on my own initiative. The humbling of Jesus is something he initiated. He was active in it. Notice also it says he was obedient. He was obedient throughout his life. Uh, well, it says here he was obedient to the point of death. Um, well, he was obedient throughout his life, and we could talk about many different situations where his obedience was demonstrated. But here, I believe in this passage, it is talking specifically about his obedience in death. And we see that obedience so clearly in the Garden of Gethsemane when he prayed, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me, yet not my will, but yours be done. That's in Luke 22. This is the time and this is the place where he could have called down those 12 legions of angels. That very time there in the garden when the reality of the judgment of God that's going to come upon him because of our sins and the weight of that is bearing down on him to the point where it says he was sweating drops of blood. We're not talking about a small burden here. This is an enormous, vast burden that he's under. He could have called upon those angels, that's it, I'm claiming my deity. But he continued to walk in obedience. Even through this trial here, he says, Lord, not my will, but your will be done. He infinitely emptied himself by leaving the glory that he had with the Father and becoming a man. He emptied himself by not asserting his rights as Lord and Master, but instead served his own disciples. And finally, he emptied himself by giving himself as a sacrifice for sin. And that's what we see here in this. He became obedient to the point of death. But I want to move on here to this final phrase in verse 8. It says, became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Why the distinction about the kind of death. I mean, why didn't it just end with he became obedient to the point of death? Why did Paul insert that? And I wanted to read here from, uh, this is a commentary on Philippians by F.F. F. Bruce um, that I thought really uh, explained this uh, phrase here, even death on a cross. But it was in the manner of his death, even death on a cross, that the rock bottom of humiliation was reached. The words death on a cross have not been added to a composition already existing in order to adapt it more precisely to the historical facts. They are essential to the sense and probably to the rhythm also. The whole composition celebrates Jesus' humiliation and his humiliation was crowned by his undergoing death on a cross. By the standards of the first century, no experience could be more loathsomely degrading than that. It is difficult for us, after so many Christian centuries, during which the cross has been venerated as a sacred symbol, to realize the unspeakable horror and disgust that the mention, or indeed the very thought, of the cross provoked. By the Jewish law, anyone who was crucified died under the curse of God. In polite Roman society, the word cross was an obscenity, not to be uttered in conversation. Even when a man was being sentenced to death by crucifixion, an archaic formula was used that avoided the pronouncing of this four-letter word as it was in Latin, crux. This utterly vile form of punishment was that which Jesus endured, and by enduring it, he turned that shameful instrument of torture into the object of his followers' proudest boast. May I never boast, said Paul, by contrast with other people's grounds of boasting, except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, an incomprehensible turning upside down of all the accepted values of his day. So here, this writer says that he hit rock bottom of humiliation. Rock bottom of humiliation was reached. He left the glories he had with his father and was born a little baby. But he was born a king nonetheless. And even on, at his death, you know, they put the banner over, Jesus, king of the Jews. 
Yet he went from being born a king to dying on a cross next to two criminals. I mean, it's not as though here's this, um, you know, we're going to execute the king, but we're actually doing it in the presence alongside two common criminals who've done evil that need to die because of their misdeeds. The humility even in that. And this really was the rock bottom of humiliation. He humbled himself throughout his life, and yet here, even in his death, he humbled himself by dying on a cross. Well, in verses 3 and 4, Paul urges us to regard one another as more important than ourselves and to look out for the interests of others. Christ demonstrated that to the fullest extent. Think about this. What would have happened if Christ had regarded himself as more important than us? We would all still be lost in our sins. What would have happened if Christ had only looked out for his own interests and not for the interest of others? He would have never come, and we all would be hopelessly lost. But, praise God, Jesus did have regard for our hopelessly lost souls, and he emptied himself. Why? Why did he empty himself? So that we, like it says there in Second um, Corinthians 8, he, beca- he became poor so that we, through his poverty, might become rich. He emptied himself that we might be filled. He became poor so that we might be rich. He died so that we might have everlasting life. Well, finally, then, I want to look at verses 9 through 11, and that is Christ's exaltation. So in verse 9, it says, For this reason also God highly exalted him. For what reason? It says, For this reason. For what reason? For the reasons we've just considered. Christ humbled himself by becoming a man, and he humbled himself by dying on a cross. So this verse is saying, because Jesus humbled himself, God highly exalted him. And this is the fulfillment of what Jesus said in Matthew 23. Whoever exalts himself shall be humbled, and whoever humbles himself shall be exalted. That's what Jesus did. He humbled himself, and God, it says here, highly exalted him. And then in James 4.10, similar thought. Humble yourselves in the presence of the Lord, and he will exalt you. So that's what we see being played out here. Jesus humbled himself, and God the Father highly exalted him. Well, it goes on in verse 9. Um, says, God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name. And then in verse 10, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow. The first way that the Father has exalted Jesus is by giving him a name which is above every other name. And we sang that song right before uh, the message here. Jesus, the name high over all, in hell or earth or sky, angels and men before it fall, and devils fear and fly. It's one thing for us, you know, to fall before the name of Jesus. But what about the, the angels? Angels who have never sinned, and yet they fall down in worship before the name of Jesus. Well, what is it about this name? With this name comes authority, power, dominion, salvation, and glory. And I thought about this um, account in Acts chapter 3, so if you would turn there, this really brings it out. Um, This is the account of um, Peter and John going into the temple and this lame beggar. So I just want to read this to you, and I think you'll see the emphasis here when when Peter um, heals him. So beginning in verse 1, this is Acts chapter 3, verse 1. It says, Now Peter and John... We're going up to the temple at the ninth hour, the hour of prayer. And a man who had been lame from his mother's womb was being carried along, whom they used to set down every day at the gate of the temple, which is called Beautiful, 
in order to beg alms of those who were entering the temple. When he saw Peter and John about to go into the temple, he began asking to receive alms. But Peter, along with John, fixed his gaze on him and said, look at us. And he began to give them his attention, expecting to receive something from them. But Peter said, I do not possess silver and gold, but what I do have I give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ the Nazarene, walk. And seizing him by the right hand, he raised him up, and immediately his feet and his ankles were strengthened. With a leap, he stood upright and began to walk, and he entered the temple with them, walking and leaping and praising God. So you see the authority and the miraculous power associated with the name of Jesus here. Paul, uh, I'm sorry, Peter says, in the name of Jesus the Nazarene, walk. And his feet are strengthened. He doesn't just stand up and wobble. You know, you've seen a horse when they first are born. They get up and, you know, they're shaking. No, this guy stands up leaping and jumping and praising God. So full restoration there. But how do we know that it wasn't really just an amazing act of power on the part of Peter? And he's just, you know, uses Jesus' name, but really he had that power in himself. Well, read on, verse 11 says, While he, that is the, the man who had been healed, was clinging to Peter and John, all the people ran together to them at the so-called portico of Solomon, full of amazement. But when Peter saw this, he replied to the people, Men of Israel, why are you amazed at this, or why do you gaze at us as if by our own power or piety we made him walk? The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of our fathers, has glorified his servant Jesus, the one whom you delivered and has disowned in the presence of Pilate when he had decided to release him. But you disowned the holy and righteous one and asked for a murderer to be granted to you, but put to death the prince of life, the one whom God raised from the dead, a fact to which we are witnesses. And on the basis of faith in his name, it is the name of Jesus which has strengthened this man whom you see and know, and the faith which comes through him has given him this perfect health in the presence of you all. So Peter just plainly says it's the name of Jesus that healed this man and then um, the rulers uh, if you turn over to chapter 4 the rulers begin questioning them and in verse 7 it says when they had placed them that is Peter and John in the center they begin to inquire by what power or in what name have you done this then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers and elders of the people, if we are on trial today for a benefit done to a sick man as to how this man has been made well, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ the Nazarene whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by this name this man stands before you in good health. He is the stone which was rejected by you, the builders, but which became the chief cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which we must be saved. It couldn't be any clearer than that. The name of Jesus is what brings salvation. The name of Jesus is what brings healing. And in Philippians here it says that God highly exalted him. How did he highly exalt him? By giving him a name which is above every other name. And then in verse 18, chapter 4, verse 18, when they had summoned them, that is the rulers, had summoned them, they commanded them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. Why? The rulers knew what was behind the miracles that were taking place and the multitudes that were being saved. It was the name of Jesus. And if they're going to, if they're going to quench this movement, then they're going to have to stop people from speaking in the name of Jesus. And of course, the disciples didn't obey that. And so the gospel goes on and souls continue to be saved. If anyone would have gone out and tried to perform miracles in the name of Peter, or John, or Paul, or one of the apostles, what would have happened? Nothing. Because there is no power, no salvation in those names. 
And the apostles, think of it, the apostles were pillars in the church. They wrote the New Testament, but there is no power in their name. There is no salvation in their name. There is salvation in no one else. That's what it says there in Acts. Um, And if you think about it, we bear the name of Christ. Christians, what does that mean? Christ's ones. We gladly associate ourselves with the name that is above every other name. Well, back in Philippians 2, so in verse 10, at the name of Jesus every knee will bow uh, of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth. So this phrase, every knee will bow. At his birth, the shepherds came and bowed before him. The wise men came and bowed before him. Throughout his earthly ministry, the disciples and others bowed before him. Why these? Why these people and not more? In comparison to the multitudes of people that encountered Jesus in his life, why did such a small number of them bow and worship him? And I think the reason for it is Jesus looked like any other man. He was God in the flesh. And again, that song that um, they sang, the Barry sang this morning, veiled in flesh, the Godhead see. That idea, veiled in flesh, it makes me think of Moses. You know, when he had been in the presence of God, his face was shining, radiating the glory of God. What did they do? They put a veil over his face so that the, the people wouldn't see that glory. Well, that's what, what we have in the person of Christ, veiled in flesh. When you look at Christ, you don't immediately see just in the flesh God. But, and that's what we see here in Isaiah 53, he uh, says, He has no stately form or majesty that we should look upon him, nor appearance that we should be attracted to him. Well, this brings up a question. Why then did some see his glory and others did not? Well, the answer is because God revealed him to some. And in, uh, it makes me think of John the Baptist in John chapter 1. This is John the Baptist speaking. He said, I did not recognize him, but he who sent me to baptize in water said to me, he upon whom you see the Spirit descending and remaining upon him, this is the one who baptizes in the Holy Spirit. I myself have seen and have testified that this is the Son of God. So John clearly says, I didn't recognize him, but God revealed to me who he was. Um, and a similar thing with Peter, when he confesses, you know, Jesus asked, who, who do people say that I am? And then he says, but who do you say that I am? And Peter answers, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And then Jesus responds in the next verse, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my father who is in heaven. So you see that it's not that uh, Peter just is more intellectual than the rest of everybody else but God had revealed to him who Jesus was so to those whom God revealed the glories of Christ to those people willingly bowed before him but there are two other instances that I want to consider the first is and we're not going to turn to this because I think we're all familiar with it but the transfiguration so remember Peter and James and John go up on the mountain with Jesus and while they're there it says that his his appearance was transfigured before them and his clothing became radiant white and his whole appearance changed what happened when that took place they fell down in fear and worship and then the second one and maybe we will turn to this one in Revelation uh, Revelation chapter 1, and you know Revelation was written by the Apostle John, so this same disciple John, now the Apostle John. He's on the island of Patmos, and um, we'll begin reading in verse 10. John speaking, he says, I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice like the sound of a trumpet saying, Write in a book what you see, and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus, and to Smyrna, and to Pergamum, and to Thyatira, and to Sardis, and to Philadelphia, and to Laodicea. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking with me, and having turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. 
And in the middle of the lampstands, I saw one like a son of man clothed in a robe reaching to the feet and girded across his chest with a golden sash. His head and his hair were white like white wool, like snow, and his eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze when it has been made to glow in a furnace, and his voice was like the sound of many waters. In his right hand he held seven stars, and out of his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun shining in its strength. And then verse 17, when I saw him, I fell at his feet like a dead man. So here John has just had an encounter. He has just seen the glorified Christ. And what's the response? He falls at his feet like a dead man. So the question then is what is different about these two encounters, the the Mount of Transfiguration and John uh, here in Revelation? What is different about this compared with John the Baptist and Peter when he's asked, who is the Christ? Well, the first encounters were the result of God revealing the glory of Christ to certain uh, people. But these latter examples are not just spiritual illumination, they are physical sight of the glorified Christ. The disciples, what was their response to the physical sight of the glorified Christ? They fell down in worship and fear. And what was it with John? Think about this. John, the apostle John, the one who walked with Jesus. It says that he leaned against Jesus there as they were reclining at the table. And he refers to himself as the disciple whom Jesus loved. You would think with that kind of relationship there in Revelation, when I saw Jesus, I ran up to him and gave him a hug. No, he fell at his feet like a dead man. Why? Because of the glory of Christ, of who Christ is. When Paul says every knee will bow, they will bow because they will see Christ in all his glory and all his might. It's not just this thing of see a picture. You can't portray the glory of Christ in a picture, the the majesty that is there. My wife, I didn't hear this, um, but recently Russell Noe, shared something that I think is very prophetic and poetic, said, we're all going to bow to Jesus, whether we bow to his crown or his scepter. And that's the reality of it. Every knee is going to bow. They're either going to bow now in worship to who Christ is, or they will bow on that day to his wrath, to his glory, to his judgment. They will bow because of who he is. Well, moving on, verse 11 says that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. What does the title Lord imply or mean? It implies that he has authority. He has dominion. He is ruler. And to confess that he is Lord means that we acknowledge him as our Lord and submit ourselves to him. To confess Jesus as Lord is to take a humble position of submission to him. You don't say he is Lord and then go and run your life however you want. That doesn't mean he's your Lord. If he is Lord, then you're bowing before him in submission to him, submission to his will. Every true Christian has already confessed that Jesus Christ is Lord and continues to profess with their mouths and with their lives that Jesus is Lord of their life and is Lord of all. But the vast majority of the world does not confess that Jesus is Lord. In fact, they confess that they themselves are Lord of their life, or that an idol is Lord. They rob Christ of glory when they confess someone or something else to be their Lord. But the day will come when every knee will bow before Jesus and every tongue will confess that he is Lord. The pride of man will be shattered on that day. You think about it. You've probably experienced some time where there's been a disagreement and with another individual, you know, taking two different, you know, I think it was this way, no, I think it was this way. And then it 
turns out in the end that you were right. And that individual has come, okay, you were right, I'm sorry, I was wrong. You know, it's kind of that half-hearted acknowledgement that they were wrong. That is not what is going to be on the day of judgment. It's not going to be people, okay, Jesus, you're Lord, I'm not. That's not what it's going to be at all. Their pride is going to be shattered. They are going to be in the presence of the glorified Christ and see his glory and his majesty. Uh, Let me just read here, or if you want to turn, Revelation chapter 6, I think brings this out. Revelation chapter 6, verse 14, says, The sky was split apart like a scroll when it is rolled up, and every mountain and island were moved out of their places. Then the kings of the earth and the great men and the commanders and the rich and the strong and every slave and free man hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains. And they said to the mountains and to the rocks, fall on us and hide us from the presence of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come and who is able to stand? Who is the lamb? That's Christ. They hide me from the presence of the Lamb, from Christ. They're seeing the judgment that is coming. They're seeing the glory of who Christ is, and they're saying, hide me from that. I can't, I can't stand before that any longer. You see that every tongue is going to confess, he is Lord. There will be no one on that day who will stand and say, I am Lord, or Buddha is Lord, or Muhammad is Lord. There will be one resounding, unanimous confession on that day. Jesus Christ is Lord. Why? Why is it that the whole universe is going to proclaim him, Jesus Christ is Lord? Because back in Philippians 2 here we see, God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every other name. This is a fulfillment of Philippians 2 there. God has exalted him, and for that reason, every knee is going to bow, and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Well, maybe before we dismiss, um, Russell, no, would you want to close us in prayer? I think Luke has the mic here. Father, we do uh, want to come before you and just confess that you are Lord. Mm Mm-hmm. We uh, we want to acknowledge that, uh, not just with our mouth, Lord, but with our life. We want to uh, be like you, Lord. We just ask that you might renew our mind, that you would transform our lives. That would be, we would be Christ-like and uh, servants of you, of the Most High God, Lord. That we would uh, encourage one another, as has been said here. And, Lord, that we would... Uh, just, uh, you said, if you uh, love me, Lord, you'll keep my commandments. Mm-hmm. So, Lord, we just want to be pleasing to you. We want your smile on our life. Yeah. And we just uh, think of this time coming up with family, that we would um, just be shining Christ-like as we're around others and just know what to speak into their lives and to encourage them to. So we just thank you for these words. We just thank you for this time. And we just thank you in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Well, we'll go ahead and get ready for the meal. Everyone's welcome to stay in fellowship and enjoy a meal together.